They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa. As always, I'm your host, Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. Before I get into today's very special guest, I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons, which just recently, um, thank you to all of you, um, has increased in size significantly. They are Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin C.V., Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, collaborating online, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krause, and Little Nikki. And my newest patrons, Andrew Krause, Seth Comfort, Little Nikki, Rita Peterson, Adam Stewart, and Jessica Luker. Thank you all so, so much, particularly during the times we're going through right now. Um, every dollar that you guys are able to give me helps. Again, this has turned into a small secondary income stream for me to help uh, you know, support my family. My wife is a stay-at-home mom. We have a kid in school that's now remote learning, hooray, which is fun. And um, she's a stay-at-home mom dealing with the five-year-old and the two-year-old, and I'm at work, so all this extra just helps us get by, and hopefully you get some good content out of the deal as well. And as always, a lot of my shows are brought to you today by the Geeks with Shields podcast. Each week, hosts Axel and Ulrich provide a nerdy escape from the darkest timeline, talking everything from comics to long-forgotten movies and TV shows. If the darkest timeline has you down, check out Geeks with Shields for all your nerdy needs. And with that, I will introduce today's guest, Robert Dean, um, please tell the people a little bit about yourself and why you're here. Uh, I'm Robert Dean. I am a journalist, writer, raconteur, and enlightened dumbass. Uh, <laughs> I, am, I live in Austin, Texas, and I have a new project coming out called Functioning on Zero, Robert Dean Live from the Lost Well on September 2nd, and I'm just trying to get as many people to learn about it as possible. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, obviously, tell me, tell me how we get to that show. But, you know, we are you originally from Austin? No, I'm actually from the south side of Chicago. And I went, I left the south side, and then I moved to New Orleans around 2007, 2008, somewhere like that. And then I went, I met my ex-wife, and she's from Austin. And then when she got uh, pregnant, we were like, well, we don't want to raise our kids here. And so when we decided to do that, we moved here and I had already was burned out on New Orleans. Like I love New Orleans and it's a fantastic place, but I was so burned out by that point. And I'd hit my professional ceiling. I was working on Bourbon Street, you know, bumping for quarters on stages, singing along the bad rap songs to tourists for, for money. And I was writing and I was writing for like every magazine in town. But I couldn't do it as a living, and I still had to work in the bars, so I was over it by then. And then when I came here, everything kind of changed. I could write professionally. I could do it 100% as my income, and that's been eight years now. And so I've been lucky enough to write for, uh, I mean, I've been in um, Fatherly, the Austin American Statesman. Uh, what else have I written for? Mike. I'm trying to think. It's like. Sometimes you lose track of the place they consequence of sound. Yep. Uh, what else? Uh, Farce the music. I've written for a million places, like trying to come up with the list off the top of my head. I haven't had any coffee yet today. And, no, it's all right. Uh, you hit on all the ones you told me about. And when I searched your name, that was a lot of the ones that came up. 
<laughs> yeah, I've, I've written for a lot, dude. It's like I, I'll read something and I'll go, oh, yeah, I did something for them. And then I'll go Google it. And I'm like, look at that. Like, That's awesome. So what's your, you know, you, you had said you, you were in New Orleans, um, you know, just kind of doing whatever you could to get by. And then in Austin, you kind of hit that. Oh, wow. There's actually, you know, a career in this for this. Is it all still freelance? Like, is there a particular bent in, you know, what you were trying to write or would you just write about anything for anyone that wanted it? I'm essentially dude. I'm a hoe for money. And Not exactly. <laughs> I like, like, am I allowed to curse? Oh, absolutely. If okay, the show's so. called shooting shit. Yeah. Sorry, man. I always have to ask. Cause no, no, slip thank out. you for asking. I, that's the one thing I forgot to cover. The, the only show that I, I use the caveat with that on is talk buster because I always ask before I start who the people are going to send it to because yeah. Blockbuster, if I get people that worked for corporate, that was a very Christian family oriented company. And so on that one, I have to be real careful about not, you know, making the whole thing be about, you know, Quentin Tarantino movies or whatever. But oh, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I pretty much like when I was in New Orleans, it was essentially uh right i was real into writing fiction basically i've always been a jack of all trades that i can do i have a journalism degree i wrote fiction and then this dude hit me up that i knew i was running this little magazine called the quarter ad that did really well for service industry people in town and uh this dude hit me up he's like hey do you want to copyright and i was like well I, I don't know how to copyright but does it pay and he goes yeah well, we do it a little bit of a services exchange at first he helped me build the website and then uh, I did that with him and then I slowly learned how to copyright and then I got the knack of it. I wasn't making shit, but it was like a significant, it changed my income. And then I was like, okay, well, I can do this. And then I just kept writing more and more and I made all my mistakes there. And so when I got here, I got gigs working for tech companies. Like I, my first job when I moved here was writing for Apple. And then- wow. Then I started working for different places around town. So now it's like three different things. Like I copyright around town. I will pick up any freelance at this point. If you got fucking money, I'll write the phone book as a freelancer. And then I have all of my Robert Dean stuff, which Robert Dean stuff is like essays, op-eds, journalistic, like investigative reporting. Because most writers that are like trained, a lot of us like are all freelancing or finding different ways to make money like if you're a writer at this point unless you got a gig with one of the monsters like rolling stone or uh you know a major newsroom you're hustling any way you can and that's kind of where i've been with it is i got my hands on a little bit of everything all the time because if somebody's like hey you want to make a quick 500 i'm like fuck yeah i do and i don't give a shit if i'm writing for something i've turned down one job ever and that was I had an opportunity to write for a super right wing company. And I was like, no, it was like, oh, writing yeah. like, look, man, I was fucking raised by Joe Strummer and Zach De La Roca. I'm not about to fucking start writing any Republican bullshit. And so it is what it is. But the money was decent. Actually, no, the money was shit, to be honest with you, now that I remember it right, which is on brand for them. And, uh, <laughs> So the money sucked, and they were like, well, it's like a good opportunity. I was like, no, it's not. I'm a fucking leftist. Get out of here. It ain't like opportunity for shit. All I can do is, what, clown on you? No. And so that's probably the only time that I ever, like, really turned down work. That's It's crazy because that, that's the hardest thing I can imagine. I mean, I even fall into that. You get someone on, and you start hearing them talk, and you go, 
oh, I like talking <laughs> so much and I'm so nice. Did I just bring someone on my show that's about to go on a freaking MAGA rant? Like I've, I've had that and luckily that hasn't happened, but you find out a little bit afterwards and you go, oh, what did I do? But, you know, as an artist like or, or a writer, like, I, I just remember like kind of the stuff that Jim Lee had gotten himself into with doing that stuff with the comics gate and all that. And it's like it's just a gig, right? Someone wants you to draw something. Of course I'll draw it. And then you go back and you go, Oh no, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. Typically, and, uh, typically you're, it's cool, but I just started talking to this company. Uh, I'm going to do some stuff with them because I have no issue with this. Uh, it's a company that does psychedelics for like, there's a huge push for psychedelics for people with, uh, mental issues like yes. anxiety and depression. And, I have anxiety and depression, so I'm a huge proprietor of if you like mushrooms will help take away depression. Fuck yes, let's do that because the pills are awful and they make people feel like zombies. And yeah, I had hooked up with them, this company, and like the one dude's a former Navy SEAL and his wife is a total sweetheart. And she was like, Look, I just want to be upfront that like we're slightly more conservative than you are. And I was like, Look, it's not about this in this instance, it ain't about the politics, it's about that you're bringing somebody from the extreme left to help you to tell the story because it matters. Like this is a non-political story. This is a story about people. So exactly, I could get behind that because again, I do a lot of like behind the scenes, like, look, I'm a fucking, you know, as left as left can be person. And I'm all black lives matter, all that shit. But I do, I am vehement in the treatment of people when they serve in the military and they come home mm -hmm. and they get treated like dog shit. And these people can't fucking get a loan or like, and they end up homeless and they have mental issues and we treat them like shit and they put themselves on the line. And so I'm vehemently against that. And I do a lot of like behind the scenes pro bono work for veterans organizations, because if I can help them just by slapping some sentences together and they can get some money out of it from some kind of grant, I'm on board with that a hundred percent. Cause I sure as fuck ain't going to go in the middle of like Iraq with some dude pointing a rocket launcher at my head. Right at that point, it's you know you're you're you signed up to save my life. Like it's po politics are gone at that point. It's like you you sir are a way better person than me, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you're treated all right. And I, it, it sucks that they're treated so bad. I, I had a guy I worked with here that was from the VA, and un unfortunately he's uh he's I, I lost contact with him, but I was going to have him on originally to talk about some of the not so great things that have happened in, in that, you know, whole side. And it's like, that would have been a great story to tell, you know, to help, to help get the word out. You hear these stories over and over and over again. Like I knew, I didn't really know any vets when I lived in Chicago because most of my people were like working class dudes that like everybody ended up being like a bricklayer and shit or like a tattooer. And then, yep. uh, when I moved to new Orleans, I worked on bourbon. I met a lot of people that served and like customers and stuff. So I got to know a lot of people. And it changed my opinion about, like, service in the military. And it's like, look, man, if you're going to fucking go through that for four years where you're, like, just your life is potential death all the time and you're out there in these really precarious situations and you are willing to go in the first place, that's the social contract that was made with you. And that should be respected. And so when you come back, everything this country should be able to do for you should just be done for you. And I think it's ridiculous yeah, that we do not put people in that position. It's like, you know, I don't give a fuck if you spent your four years in Germany. If somebody said you had to go, 
you were willing to go. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a goddamn shame, and that that comes with it's. It doesn't make any sense. It's like that should be where all of the funding is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is to protect those people because <laughs> they they didn't necessarily think that they were going to be alive after that right there's always that chance it's like you that's not the kind of that's not the kind of thing a normal person has to think about on a daily basis like you're you're no longer just a normal member of society like you said you made a social contract it and that's amazing that you do that a lot of that pro bono i think that's i mean cheers to you that's that's a labor of love at that point you know yeah i'm not in for anything it's just I look at it as I can help them do that. And, you know, is a lot of people are super anti-military and I'm not like pro I'm not like out there in the streets with my American flags. I think the American American flag worship is fucking stupid. I think nationalism is fucking stupid. But um, if you're going to sign up to do that shit, you should be properly taken care of when you come home. That's just, that is my thing. It's like, and I feel the same way about cops. Like I'm a, 100% like I said I am left as fuck and I get the whole defund the police thing and I'm for the most part I am behind that because when people say defund the police they immediately think they're like stop having cops no one said stop having cops everyone was saying is retrain them in a proper way stop allocating millions of dollars to fucking tanks and shit that doesn't matter so some they can have some 50 million dollar tanks that 50 million dollars could have went to a community and change the community. So right. stop using the money to protect bad cops. Yeah. Start using the money to make good cops better. Yeah, like <laughs> it's, it's really easy. What I tell people all the time, like, look, I'm from an Irish working class neighborhood and I was, it pretty much was self-policed and I am from the South side of Chicago, seven blocks from the white Sox, like oh, in yeah. the part of Chicago. And when I was a kid, you basically were, it was black people were not allowed to walk in my neighborhood. Uh, Mexican people were not allowed. It was an Irish stronghold. And I, I'm not proud of this. It's just what it is. And that was like that. And if everybody was either a cop or a criminal. And if you got in trouble, like, you knew that you had two choices. The cop caught you. One was either the cop was going to tell you that they're going to take you down to the docks, beat the shit out of you, and then drop you off and you're on your own. Or they're going to take you take you in so your dad beats the shit out of you and you get it doubly bad. I knew that going as a child that that was what happened to the cops. I can't imagine the experience of a black man having to live his life with that kind of violence or worse every single day. It's fucking insane. And so that's how we you perpetrate this uh you, you perpetrate this entire system that we live within and it's fucking absolutely bonkers and it starts with like we need to have compassionate policing and that's the thing is like i said i'm not anti-cop in that respect it's i believe that cops need to have if you're when you do that job fucking it's every day the whole world is against you and you see the world against you and people hate you you don't have nwa never wrote a song called fuck the fireman so nope. it's like there's a lot of complex social issues there and that's like half of 90 like 90% of fucking rap lyrics are talking about uh, hating cops so clearly there's an experiential problem that we are not citing here that I think is extraordinarily fucked up but ultimately if we retrain and take care of people so when they are done 
doing this highly insane, stressful job that could change literally the world with one bad move. If you see George Floyd, uh, you should, we should probably re reexamine that situation. But if copying policing can be better than with their, all the good ones that aren't doing anything fucked up when they're done, they should be taken care of too. It's just, we put people in these traumatic situations where fucking if they could be in a shootout or they could be involved in a tank blowing up, you're scrambling people's brains and their emotions and putting them back into society. And yep. And acting like they should just be normal again, quote unquote. Yeah. And so it's just, it's a very hard and complex issue. Dude, that's <sighs> It, it, it's very refreshing to, to have that conversation with somebody because, you know, a lot of it you get, you, you, it, it delves too deep. Like you said, a lot of people hate on the military in its whole. And the and that to me is like, in, in police, it's like, if it gets down to the level of the singular person working there and you know that singular person is a good person, your dislike or distrust or, you know, rethinking or, or anger towards it shouldn't ever be directed at that one person. It's like, you know, people say, well, if you, you see a good cop on the street, are you going to spit on them and do this? It's like, no, there's no reason to, cause they're a good cop. But if they come with a baton and start beating on a guy who's peacefully protesting, they're not a good cop. Like, I don't know where, <laughs> like it should be pretty clear. I don't know. No, it's, and that's the thing is that like, it comes system uh, systematically with that, profession is that like you will to the outsider will never understand what they go it's a fraternity and so yeah. through that fraternal or order of policing they have an experience that we will never have and so they view the world through a completely different lens but to them it's if i put on the badge like we share this thing that no one will get unless you do it too because we've yep. seen the best and worst of humanity at the same time and that fucks with their brains like my ex-wife is a uh an ICU nurse and she's oh, got, Jesus. she's got all kinds of issues and coronavirus has fucked her up. Like, I don't think she's going to be an ICU nurse when this is all over, because when I talk to her, it's just like, Ooh, like there's some shit there. And so what do you do with that? How do you unpack that? And you got to look at it like, people's jobs, depending on what it is, can emotionally scar them in different ways. And we have to be respectful of that. And, you know, with the cop thing, it's like, that's a one-on-one -on -one basis. Just like all these things should be one-on-one -on -one basis. And again, if somebody fucks up, like there's this whole talk of, well, if it, if somebody gets sued, take it out of their pensions. You're like, that's fucking heavy duty. That's what a lot of people want to do. And they're yeah. like, that'll root out bad cops immediately. And you're like, if that's, a, if that's an answer, and that's a uh, conversation that people way smarter than me should probably be having with each other. Yeah, shit. And then like anything, you know, those systems can get bent and spun and messed with and loopholes come up where it's never the worst of the worst that get affected by it. They, they, they always find ways to make it be the, you know, first time offender or the one time screw up, you know, the, you, you start thinking back to, you know, laws not treating everybody the same way, right? It's like, you know, how 10 years ago in Massachusetts, I could have a friend go away for 30 years for dealing weed. And now I can walk into a place on the side of the road and buy it and walk to the prison and like wave it in their face and laugh at them. You know what I mean? That's fucked up. 
right? <laughs> and um, then you can, you know, have billionaires stealing money from us every day and they walk free. It, it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Um, and these conversations need to keep happening. And yeah. When weed, so, stores, when weed stores start looking like the Apple, when weed shops are looking like the Apple store, that's when you know it's time that we need to, uh, you know, release anyone who's ever been in trouble for selling weed. Like if you're a nonviolent offender and you're just in there right. for selling drugs, fucking release right. every single it's person. It's not like, like, okay, fine, you're in prison because you were in a, in a deal gone bad and you got into a gunfight with the cops. You should probably be in prison. But, you know, 18-year-old kid got, got caught with, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of weed on him in their car and didn't resist arrest. <laughs> I, th- I think you should be walking free at this point, buddy. Even even somebody and, that's just been dealing in the neighborhood, if that's yeah. how they were getting by, what what is the fundamental difference between some guy who just sells weed in his neighborhood to a fucking store? There is none. Not none anymore. And that's, I mean, there never was. That that's the reality of it. But um, like you said, I, I can drive in Salem, Massachusetts, on Highland Avenue. There's there's a weed store that looks like a goddamn cell phone store. Like yeah. it's all lit up neon light and, you know, people come in and they've got like, you know, really nice, like happy music playing. And it, it's like walking into um, like a coffee shop. You know what I mean? It's and, and you sit there and you go, yeah, OK, it's great that we made it there, you know, like with anything. It's it's good. But I just, you know, you you and I are of the age and I in high school that was like the worst thing you could do. There were kids doing worse stuff. But when you think about like the worst thing, the majority of kids are doing to get by that was, they were in fear of going to jail for a long period of time for that. And it's like, shit. I don't know. I'm at the place in my life where I am not a libertarian whatsoever, but I do think all drugs should be legalized because I think instead of putting people in cages to treat drugs, if somebody's going to do it, they're going to do it. So might as well tax the shit yep. out of it and let people do drugs because it's easier to treat them medicinally. If somebody wants to kick, we can put them in treatment places that are well-rounded for them. And and they already do it with alcohol. Yeah, and we do it with alcohol, which is the hardest thing to kick. And, like, heroin and alcohol are the two hardest things to kick and everything else. I mean, like, what, what really is there? Like, if somebody's smoking crack realistically if you like they're going to hit rock bottom and a lot of them want to get off of it after a certain amount of time and we can help fix that we can do the same thing with meth and all that shit too but there aren't that many people smoking meth to be honest with you i mean yeah are there crackheads and meth heads but they they, yes they exist but in the number of people against who smoke weed or do coke it's not the same numbers and so it's like can you control that in a way that makes sense and give people a way to use but also take care of them when they're ready to be off it. And that exists and, in other and countries edu- and educate and make it safe. And all of those things that like, you know, we already do with alcohol. Yeah. Quote unquote, even though you can ruin your freaking life on alcohol, oh we God. at least, at, le- at least attempt to educate, you know, yeah. that, that it, because it's legal. I mean, I, I was, I was a resident advisor in college and the dorm I was in was a dry dorm and we had a strict, you know, you catch kids with booze, we kick them out. And I went um, to the bat for a lot of my residents. And I'm like, look at, I go, these weren't kids having a crazy party in their room. The, the kid, him and his buddy were playing an Xbox game and having a Bud Light. Do you know what I mean? Th- this is not, yeah, they broke the rules. 
yeah, their door was open. Yeah, one of the other RAs saw them. But seriously, these kids are from out of state. Like, is there another way we can handle this? Can we do, like, community service? Can we do a training course? Can we bring in education? Like, whatever it is, just to let them, you know what I mean? Because I'd rather have them doing it safely in their room busting each other's balls over freaking xbox then over at a frat where in the city my college was in the frats were terrible it wasn't like like a good well-established place to go they were they were dangerous you know and and not and not just you know for women which frats are always dangerous for you know it was just dangerous as like a a person to be there because they all they warred like they were gangs you know (laughs) and so it's it just blows my mind that the world never wants to invest in giving people information. They just want to invest in telling them what's wrong and not giving a good reason why. Dude, I'm almost 40, and I meet if I meet a guy, and he's like, yeah, I was in a frat. I just look still at almost 40, and I'm like, ugh. Gross. Yeah. And, and like, again, I've... Like, I was a kid, and I was like, you should have known better. That shit sucks. And I've witnessed people that have, that have done well by it. You know what I mean? Like when you do the research, it's like, oh, because they were in one that genuinely was, yeah, okay, they partied and did stupid stuff, but it genuinely was trying to establish itself as a legitimate thing where most of them are not. <laughs> most of them are just excuses to be awful. Yeah, I don't. Ugh. The whole thing is just every time I see it's gross. Somebody, I was legit, I still will be like, you were in a frat? I'm like, it's gross. I'm like, I'm like, dude. Gross! Like, I never have anything nice, and I would I like make fun of guys that I like, and I'm like, yeah, you were a frat boy, because you're disgusting. And they're like, it's fucked up, man. It was a long time ago. I was like, doesn't matter. You're still a dick. Yep. <laughs> I will hold that against you to the day you die, sir. <laughs> yeah, so um, is. so you were saying again? I I will talk forever, but um, I want to make sure you. So, how did your uh? So, you know, you've been doing this for eight years now in Texas, you said? Yeah. So the, the, th- the thing that your big project here is is meant to be a holdover for, the, the thing that you're on to push. What um what moved the journalism that you said this was going to become like a show? Like, t- tell me how we got there. Okay, so pretty much I, I've been doing op-eds and essays and stuff, and I built my name, Robert Dean. It, it started with fiction, and then I moved back. To, I went to journalism school and did a lot of music journalism throughout the years. And then I kind of, you know, have a lot of fun opinions on things. And my mentor and I were talking one day, and we were. Just, I was like, I had talked about, like, expressing things. He goes, dude, why don't you just go back and, like, start doing more journalism stuff again? And so I started doing that and then I got into essays and then like everything changed. And so it was like doing fiction helped establish the brand. But then once I started doing more journalistic pieces and I started doing investigative stuff and then I started doing op-eds and I started doing essays on my experience, everything changed and like people started liking what I had to say about stuff and how I see the world through my lens. And it, it was great. And everything People know me from that work now. Like I, I got the ball running with my first two books, and I've been in a bunch of short story collections. But I was just another writer, way lost in the pack. And then once I started doing this stuff, everything changed. And so then I had an idea for a show called Out of Step, 
And then when I hooked up with some TV people in town, there's some like legendary TV people floating around Austin. And I hooked up with a couple of them and I pitched them on my idea and they were like, you know what? Yeah, you have that thing. Cause I've been interviewed on TV a lot over the years. And I was like, I just wanted to do originally. I was like, I was drunk in my garage. Like I want to interview Tyler Childers. And then I told this dude, I told this dude that I knew who worked in TV and he goes, no man. He's like, you could be on TV. He's like, you shouldn't just settle for that. He's like, put together a show and let's figure this thing out. And so I came up with the concept of it. And then next thing I know, fast, we shot up sizzle reel. And next thing I know, I was like in LA. And then I was talking to a production company. And then like, now I have kind of, I'm in the between kind of two production companies. And I was supposed to go out to meet with CNN and, you know, it's heavy duty because I'm a diehard Bourdain fan. Like he is one of, he was, I've written about him exhausted, like probably four times since his death. And uh, I was like, he was, I had a list of people that I always wanted to meet and it was always Henry Rollins and Anthony Bourdain. And yes. that was it. Those are like the two people I've ever given a fuck about meeting. And so when I, when he passed away, it was weird because somebody was like, yeah, we want you to come in and interview at CNN because, you know, they have a hole for something like that because Camu Bell's show is totally different, but like, well, let's hear what you have to say. And I was like, it's pretty fucking heavy duty to know that you were essentially interviewing for your idol's job. And oh, wow. so we were going to do all this shit and then the pandemic hit. And then now I fucking couldn't tell you what's going on because my people, I have one production company that these dudes are my fucking homeboys. Like, they're called, uh, they're just starting out. It's made of a bunch of like pros that have been in the game forever. It's called Tin Whiskers, that these dudes are my people. And then there's other one that I was working with. Everybody's sitting idle. No one's working. So that's why I put the special together and was like, got to keep things moving somehow. I don't know how many people are going to watch this on YouTube. I don't know what to expect. I don't know if 50 people are going to watch it. But when I put the out of step, sizzle reel up 10,000 people watched it so awesome it's really like i am so lucky and humbled that all of these different kinds of people want me to help tell their stories and that people think that i would be interesting enough to push narratives forward which i don't take for granted for a second i am unbelievably so thankful i could be in this position i mean i'm still broke everything sucks still but to be at least have a seat at the potential table. I'm at the kids table, but I'm still in the room, you know? Right. They're still giving you scraps. Yeah. And I mean, it's, <laughs> there's stuff there, but like I said, nothing's getting green light. Nothing's getting done. Yeah. Like, how, how do you have conversations with the dude whose literal whole show is based around me getting on a plane for five, for four months straight, you know, like, right. And that was going to be the next thing. So I, I love, especially when it's someone I haven't talked to before, my favorite thing is to go in cold. Cause I, I feel like then I'm not just going through the same Well, I already asked you all this stuff off air and now on air, it's just going to seem stale. Um, so what I was going to say is, you know, what is the format of the show that you're coming up with now for YouTube, similar to what you were going to have been putting on TV? Like what's the, what's the whole like bent behind it? Like you've, uh, you've been alluding to it, but, um, and if you, if you can talk about it, if not, um, I can talk, I mean, I, I can talk about it. It's fine. My, the show essentially is, I am, I'm passionate about telling people stories and having like 
getting their information. And so for me, it was stuff like I'll give an example of one of the shows. It was it's trans and I have like mm-hmm. five, six friends that are trans. One of my best friends is trans. And so I have personal experience with all of these people and all five of them live around the country. So I wanted to weave a narrative together to show people in middle America, like I'm a straight ass white guy. I, you know, I've never sucked a dick in my life. Not against sucking a dick, but it's not for me. But right. I see the lens of a regular ass white dude. And so I want through this, through, through this thing that I encompass, I want to tell their stories because I have these friends that have these extraordinarily uh, pe- like painful yet powerful transitions and they're living the best lives that they want. So it's like weaving together five or six different stories to show the overarching narrative of like, like love is love, people are people. And just because you don't understand why somebody would have corrective surgery for, you know, to get the top, to get their boobs cut off or to get, you know, whatever. That's just what, they, that's how they're finding happiness and we should never shortchange that. So it's essentially like taking that with other subjects and trying to be as vague as possible. Yeah, like, of course. But it's, that's the kind of overarching thing is to take numerous points of view and to weave together one experience so people at home can go okay that sounds like my kid or my friend and you know i should respect who they are because they the these people deserve your respect and they're no less than you or i and what they have to say is important too and let's help tell stories in various different forms and so there was a litany of examples through the season that we would be potentially doing this trans is just the one that came to mind immediately my friend foster my friend Foster Rudy is a trans writer and he's fucking incredible. And so it's constantly finding ways for that. But with the, the new thing that I did was essentially it's a tribute. Charles Bukowski is my favorite writer. And uh-huh. I, he did a special in 1972 called Bukowski reads Bukowski. And so the bar the one of the bars I hang in, was soliciting. They're like, Hey, we're fucking broke. We're trying all these different ways to make money we're going to start renting out stage time. And so bands will go in there and they'll like borrow the stage for, they get the sound guy, the lights, and they have access if they want to buy a couple of drinks just for the band members. It's only five people or so. And they will get the venue to themselves if they just want to go in there and practice or film themselves or do whatever. And I was like, what can I do? And then I thought about the, uh, the Bukowski thing. And I was like, what if I just did like a riff on that reading my stuff and shot it? Like they shot Bukowski reads Bukowski. And so that's how oh. I came up with the concept. So it's like inner it's there. I read, uh, some essays. I, there's some B roll of me fucking around and then they interview me and we put it all together. And it's like 30 minutes long. Oh, that sounds great. It turned out really cool. Like I, Shout out to Matt Slayer from the And Now We Drink podcast because he learned how to do video editing because he was doing multi-camera. His podcast has multi-camera shots on it. And so he started putting together his uh, video versions himself. And then now he's really good at video editing. And now he's just editing video for people. And he put this thing together and it's beautiful. Tom Taylor, this guy, one of my guys who shot TV, uh, he is the one who shot it and both of them did just an incredible job of helping me put this together. And we did it with like no money. We did it on a entirely shoestring budget of 
getting the stage time and me getting all them drunk. <laughs> oh man, I, I it it sounds like something that I'm gonna want to see. Um, it's everyone who's seen it has been very, very like, well, they're like, wow, I did not expect this to be this cool. And I'm like, well, thanks. But, you know, but it's I, the reviews of it have been very, very cool. And I'm so deeply like humbled that people give a shit. Oh, that's awesome. And you said it's uh, again, I'll give you another chance at the end too to tell, but it's, it's coming on the 1st of September. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's listening and they're like, yeah, this dude doesn't sound like a complete piece of shit, just follow me on uh, Instagram or Facebook and I'll be blabbering on about it the closer it is. And if you go to, like, my Facebook page or my Instagram, the first thing on either is the promo picture I made for it. It's I use the Danzig skull because I use his skull for all my shit. And my best friend's like, you know, one day if you get successful, Danzig's going to be pissed that you've been using his skull. I'm like, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Freaking Danzig, um, and it's it's gonna it's gonna be on your YouTube channel. Yeah, it's gonna be on there. I like I said, I have no idea what to expect, but hopefully, some people watch it. No, that's that's all we can do. I, this this pandemic, I, I mean, YouTube, the the whole world of putting stuff online has changed so significantly, and like the amount of hits and views that really mean something anymore. And but uh. It is amazing. It's it's a crazy feeling when you put something out there and then you just start seeing whether you know it's 10 views or 100 views or 1,000, whatever it ends up being. It's just so weird to be able to reach people that way, you know? Um, and it it's always feels very strange to me. You, you had said something funny. I wanted to double back to it because you said you always wanted to meet and interview Henry Rollins. And I, I agree. I think that would be an absolute freaking treat to sit down and talk to that guy, even for five minutes. But I have a, an experience, never got to meet him like face to face, but um, in 2000, 2001, the Rollins band was on the Warp Tour and I was like 18 and I was there and it was the hottest day of the year. And so there were like people protesting it to like have it like closed because kids were going to die because it was like 110 out and they were charging like four bucks a bottle for bottles of water and Rollins comes out on stage with cases of bottled water. And just starts crowd surfing them out under the crowd. And it was like talking to like, fuck this venue. Like they're not giving you freaking water. He goes, and, and he actually got forced off the stage for giving away water. So he just got like a little like tiny um protest going with people. And then finally they let him give away the water and keep playing. And I was like, that was pretty cool. Like in a show that's supposed to be like a rebellious show, you know, and then freaking Rollins has to come out and school all the freaking young capitalist jerks out of just give away the goddamn water already you know Rollins is the g man he's always he's he's never steers you wrong he is i can gush for a lot hours on the band that henry rollins is and how i you know we should all be so lucky to step within a foot of his shadow because the things he has done for music that he's done for the culture are innumerable and he's a very important person yeah, I so, agree. He's just one of those people that necessarily like is completely uh, just you can't replace him. And he has done. I saw him speak a couple of years ago, and it was great. It was so fucking cool, and I got like a signed book by him. And 
I'm just a huge fan of the way he lives his life, the way he operates. I couldn't live the way he does with his regimens and things, but you know, he's he's irreplaceable to us. I mean, he's definitely going to go down as one of the most influential and important figures to punk. And I think for all heavy music, he has something that he's given people on a different level. And I hope to follow in the tradition of him because he said something powerful once. He goes, look, my generation is fucked. All I can do right now is get to the side and I can block for you. You guys can keep running and move the ball forward. And that's kind of where, I mean, I'm getting, I'm 30, I'm 39. So like, I'm still viable, but I'm going to get to that point too, where it's like, all I can do is just block for you to run the ball. And I realize that I'm on that, like, I'm getting there. Like once around 45 or it depends on what your venue is. Hopefully at 45, my life is fucking awesome. But until then, it's like you keep pushing forward, but you got to think the same way too when you're the old guy. No, that that that's really powerful because you know it. I think it's a thing you can't really see until you get into your. I'd say to, to your mid thirties because I'm at thirty six. You start seeing it. You start going. You know, eventually, you just have to hold that baseline up. You know, just not let it drop back down, and then other people can step up further than it, but. If you just give up and drop away, then they, the, the generation next is left having to redo all the legwork you already did and then try to go past it. And we don't get anywhere that way. You know, for catching a lot of it's weird to see the social dynamics because there's obviously the like whatever boomer thing. And then that's a whole different conversation. But. Yep. Gen X is, like, totally apathetic to most things. <laughs> but, I mean, like, some of them are very socially progress. And, I, and I mean, it's disingenuous to say that each of these places don't have their actors that are helping push the narratives forward. But I think, by and large, the biggest places that you see the most activism is while both of those places laid the groundwork, because you would not, this conversation would not be possible without contributions, boomers, because technically Rollins is a boomer. And yep. um, the people after, that came up after him that are a little bit older than us, they did all that like great work, too. So that absolutely would be disingenuous to say they didn't. But millennials and especially these kids that are coming up after us, they're the ones that are like, no, fuck that. We are not accepting this shit to a degree that like is amazing. Like they are totally changing the game in terms of like how they're protesting. They protest with zero fucks. And yeah, and I, I was telling someone how, you know, as as a as a child of the of the mid to late eighties and nineties, you know, yeah, there were there were protests and things going on around then when I was pretty young that were big. But I feel like from like my early teen years to just a few years ago now, things got kind of dormant as far as like the activism thing went it was still there people were pushing but like you said th- there's been a last last like five six seven years this giant inspiring outpouring of of younger people that are just like yeah we're like to me it feels like a pro it, it feels like we're reading about something historical that's already played out when you watch when you watch the way that these things happen it's like th- nothing has seemed this big you know, even though there have been things that have been very important and very big, it's just it's something about the way they've been able to weaponize and mobilize the the new technologies available to them to make a unified voice. 
and that's incredible to me. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And you know, that... like you, and, and and it plays into what you and I. I mean, you you you, you know the op eds and essays and just telling people's stories. I mean, that's that's the most important thing, right? Is it's getting people's real story, the real words out there, not making some you know. Hey, check me out. Let me take one word from this conversation I had with Robert Dean to to sway, you know, some sort of headline that's going to make you want to watch my channel. You know, it's no, we're having a conversation about real stuff because we're people and letting people just be real and be themselves is going to, I think it's, I think, I think it's one of the things that's going to get us by. I just, the, the entire precipice of how culture is evolving, I am at the point where I feel like such a dinosaur because yep. I do not give a fuck about social media. Like, <laughs> I do it because I have to. Same but, here, dude. But I don't give a fuck about social media. Like, dating sites and apps are toxic as shit. I just met a, uh, I just met somebody on, a, like, one, and I, like, was like, okay, check it out. Like, and if I'll say it public, I was like, look, I'm deleting this shit because I already know that this we're cool. Like, I found my chick, and it's fine. And I deleted it immediately. I was like, I have no interest in this anymore. Like, I'm an adult. I'm almost 40. You're what I want. Okay, let's just move on from there. And right. Beyond that and social media and just, like, having to post videos, little clips, and all the stuff. And I'm like, can you just get a kid for me to do this to help me, like, not do this shit because I do not want to at all. I don't care what's popular. I don't give a fuck about TikTok dances or any of that. That's <laughs> I don't. I just don't care. Like I, I do legitimately don't need to post a photo of every five seconds of like. I don't need my life documented in that way. I want to be fully immersed in experience rather than be like smash that like button. No, bro. You no, it's exactly. whatever the fuck you want, dude. I want to be it's, like. It's so want, hard that that they that the, it kind of wants you to be that way. You know what I mean? I hate that because it's like, and again, people people that are against that that like you know the the, the freaking haters out there of it immediately when you have to go that route to get your stuff spread out there. One, it feels so fake to do it. Like you know, I I. Anytime I share a video or share a, you know, hey, I need to get more patrons. You know, I, I just sit there and go, oh, I feel like such a piece of shit. But at the same time, people respond to it. it it's like, and it, it, it's it's a terrible catch twenty two. I almost deleted my Twitter account before my brother, uh, you know, was like, oh no, that that's the, if you're gonna do a podcast, man, that's the way you got to spread that shit out there because it gets to everybody. And I'm like, I don't like this <laughs> but it yeah it, it's an unfortunate necessary evil wouldn't it be great to get to a world where we can pay someone jesus i tell people all the time there's going to be one or two things that's going to happen in my life either i'm going to have some kind of success where i can hire somebody to do it all or i admit that i'm an ultimate failure and i get nowhere and i just throw my phone in the fucking river and then if you want to reach me fucking i would I have no attachment to the idea of an iPhone. People are like, oh my God, I can do everything. I'm like, dude, I would, at this point, if you can just give me a phone that has Google uh, so I can argue, win arguments and I can send texts and emails, that's all I need. 
I don't have any I, social media on my phone at all. That's awesome. I, I wish I could get there. When I go on vacation, I take them off. I uh, I have no social media. I like if I need something. The oh, actually, I take that back. I have Facebook Messenger because people need to get a hold of me. Yeah. And then I have my Robert Dean page just so I can mm-hmm. share links and things that I find interesting. Even oh, that yeah. that drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah. And you, but oh man, it, it, it it's it's really interesting. You know, my, anyone that grabs my phone, you know, always says you don't have this set up right. I go, well, it works for me. And they go, but you don't have a setup right. I go, if I spend all the time doing all this stuff, one, then what am I really doing? I'm just doing nothing but being attached to this phone all day. And two, as soon as I have to get another one, I have to do it all again. But I, I want to be able to pick it up and have it do the thing I want it to do. And then I put it back down um, at work. You know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I use certain softwares all day and you can like hotkey them and do like all this crazy stuff. And people are like, well, why don't you do that? It's like, cause if I jump on your computer, my stuff isn't going to be like that over here. I just want to jump on, use it, do my job, walk away. It's a tool. I don't ask my screwdriver to be customized. I just grab a screwdriver, you know, and <laughs> it, it, it's really frustrating. And again, no, if, if, that really makes somebody happy, you know, to have all the ringtones and sounds and everything perfect. That's fine. But my sound's off on my phone. I don't even hear it when it rings, you know, <laughs> like oh, I, I just don't care. <laughs> I, I, I turn on my ringer in case like I have to like have something, but it's weird. Like I remember a time when everybody had specialized ringers and like you'd hear yeah. like, you know, in, uh, they see me rolling and you're like, yep. Okay, like that was everybody's like there were all these ringtones and all this other stuff, and like now no one has their phones on, like it's all vibrate. Do you remember the callbacks? Like yeah. someone would call and you'd go, um, you know, hey, why don't you listen to this song by the Backstreet Boys while you wait for Natalia to answer your call? And I totally like, oh, remember that. Christ. <laughs> I one hundred percent remember that that and uh I think at one point I looked into that to see if I could get like a metal song, but I don't think it ever could. I think that it was like all pop music that. Oh, imagine if you could hit someone with some cannibal corpse. Yeah. Oh, like I, said, I wanted something like so brutal that somebody like, Oh, do I really want to wait for this person and like make them listen to corpse? That'd be funny as fuck. Oh, really, really, really funny aside. Uh, since, since you're a music guy and you obviously, um, you know, you had with Rollins and stuff, you know, the, the punk scene is, is something I'm sure we, we could talk about. The uh, the singer from Less Than Jake has a podcast, a music podcast, and he started it during this pandemic. And he had um, one of the sing one of the Chris's from Anti-Flag on. And he it was really funny because he's like the first time we went on tour with these guys, like their their label put them together. And, you know, we're like like the ska you know, like poppy punk band that's here just, you know, drinking and having a good time. And here we have anti-flag who are like the anti-government political, like all of their pictures are like old fashioned, like, you know, eighties, like crazy over the top punk rocker guys. Like we thought we were going to get on tour with these guys and they were going to beat the shit out of us. <laughs> and he's laughing his ass off. He's like, yeah, I'm totally not that guy. 
<laughs> he's like, uh, you know, you, you'd think anti-flag would be, you know, the first band to be like, you know, oh, don't wear a mask in public. It's the government controlling you. He goes, dude, I have to. I have my, my dad's at home. I live with him. He's 90 and he's he's going to die if I bring this home. And I'm like, it's just so weird to hear the real people behind the, you know, that thing. And I, I just found that to be a really funny aside. I don't know. I think I saw that tour, actually. It sounds familiar. I def- I definitely did. Yeah, it's... I mean, the, the mask thing is interesting based on that people who, like, it, it's become this weird politicized issue, but then anybody with common sense is like, no, just wear your fucking mask. Just, it's not even a political thing. It's just have common decency for other people's health. That's right. it. I went, I went on vacation. We went to uh, Provincetown um, off the Cape, which is the, the gay capital of Massachusetts, and it's just a wonderful, accepting incredible place and they basically made the whole town masks required everywhere and the reason for doing it is because it's it's a it's an um, oceanfront vacation town everything is jammed and on top of itself if you didn't do that everyone's gonna get sick <laughs> you know what i mean and because everyone had to wear them no one complained there was no walking into a business for getting to put it up and have to get told so there was no awkward conversations everyone was just living and it was wonderful. And it, it was terrible to come back to this area where even at work you have to freaking argue with people. Or, you know, I'm only doing this for you and the government to blow it. Shut up. Put it on. Like, <laughs> please, I'm done. Well, I'll have a conversation about government control about another topic. But right now I don't want to die. So <laughs> just. <laughs> it's like people's selfish, like American exceptionalism, exceptionalism is, blows my fucking mind. Because we have this thing built into us to think that we're special and that we're better than other people and that like our rights extend beyond, and I'm using the pejorative we clearly, and it's like, or I should say the royal we. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it blows my mind how insensitive we can be to other people because you think you're infringing on needs. It's like, dude, no one is infringing on shit. Just wear a fucking mask. We're trying to figure this thing out. We don't know. There's so much we don't know still. And they're like, well, back then we were using respirators. Now they're not using respirators anymore. So explain that, smart guy. I'm like, well, it's called fucking science, dumbass. Uh, We got hit with something we didn't know. You don't hear people talking about hand sanitizer that much anymore because we figured out that it doesn't live on surfaces. We've pretty much just figured out that it's a breath-to-breath kind of thing. So let's just go with science because when you talk about the flu or the colds, Whatever, the last big flu pandemic was a hundred, over 100 years ago. So we've had 100 years of science to kind of figure this thing out. We've managed within months to do years' worth of work because all the smartest people in the fucking world are working together to put to, like, as, like, when people are talking, like, oh, Bill Gates is behind this. And I'm like, dude, look, there are the smartest people in the world from MIT to the Mayo Clinic to Oxford to whatever place in Germany and China and whatever, all of them are trying to solve this. So you think that all the smartest science in the world that are coming up with ways to help make us better and to come up with vaccines, this is a government conspiracy. Do you think a guy in fucking Beijing or a guy in some small town in Italy that's like 80 years old fighting for his life gives a shit who Joe Biden is? No, friend. They don't. They just don't want to die. Right. So 
That's all it should be about. <laughs> and we like have this way to just shit on people's, uh, you know, like their fortitude to live. So. Yeah, it's it's my my right. This is the royal my. My right is to be able to do what I want and live. And so that means that your right is to die if I want you to. Uh, no. <laughs> or my right is to say that just because it affects your elderly grandfather and not me. Well, your elderly grandfather got to live his life, so fuck him. No. No. <laughs> like, if we can protect him, let's protect him. He has enough shit to worry about. My elderly grandfather, everything is trying to kill him. You know? <laughs> like... The sanctity of life and this, like, idea that um, no life is worth valuable unless it's within your own. Like, look, man, some of us, like, there are lots of people with lots of different kinds of religions, okay? So some people, like, aren't convinced that there is a heaven on the other side. So just respect the fact that everybody yeah. should be able to live their life in the best way they can possibly get. Because what happens if that that is just a wrap when it's over? It's a scary thought to think about. So... Have some yep. fucking respect that Grandpa should be able to live his days. Like, if the man's, like, managed to, like, get this far, he shouldn't have to die from fucking you because you won't wear a mask and fucking Radio Shack, dickhead Brad. Yeah, yeah, he shouldn't have to die because he can't run from you fast enough. Yeah. Like, I saw a video of a guy running around a Walmart hugging people and then telling them they had COVID. It's like, even, even if it was just a dumb kid trying to make a fucking prank, that's, it, it's disgusting. Like, what is with people? <laughs> I don't know. This is all... The world is a very silly place. Um, an Another thing I wanted to touch on, I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, from a very amorphous standpoint, about the idea behind your show um, that, that I thought was really great that you touched on is the ability to say, you know, like the, the trans subject, for example, knowing people from around the country or from around the world or that are growing up in different places that are all having the same experience or at least internally in their body having the same experience but are treated differently you know and this and that it's a really important thing that i think more people need to see because a lot of people still and god a vast majority of people still believe that things like that are taught and not just what the people are and that's the most disgusting thing in the world to me is they go, well, it's just the culture. The culture is telling, it's just a hot, like cool, fun thing to do to be trans or to be gay or to be this. And I go, really? So the years and years and years of mental problems and horrible depression and everything and PTSD from surgeries or from, you know, something that happened to them really that these people are willing to put themselves through to find out who they really are. Oh yeah. That's just a trend. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you think that way, asshole. I, you know, I mean, when I have a ton of friends who, like, I am proud and lucky that I have friends that are, I have a lot of black friends. I have a lot of friends that are trans. I have friends that are gay. I have all these different minority groups that are, like, that call me an ally to them. Disassociating their experience with how you live your life is fucking gross. Right. Like, Thinking about, like, if growing up gay back in the day, like, it's easier now, but when we were kids, fucking, why would you want to be gay? It's like, there's so much bullshit that had to be incurred, but these people had to fight for rights, and they had to fight for 
like being straight is so much easier, but they had to pick who they, they, that's who they love. That's the way that they're wired and that's fine. But like they went through so much bullshit back in the day. Like I remember when, when I was, I walked in my first gay pride parade in 2002 or 2003 with one of my friends, (laughs) because back then it was like, people made a huge deal. Like you walked in gay pride. I was like, fuck yeah, that's my homeboy. Of course I'm going to walk next to him. I was like, I don't care. I was like, I'm not gay, but I'm fucking here for them all day long, dude. They're just people. Just because two dudes want to kiss, I was like, ruin your fucking day. Who are you? You can't get, you couldn't get laid in a fucking morgue, dude. Don't worry about what they're doing. And to disassociate, like, or to cheapen the experience of a trans person, like I said, my friend Foster Rudy is, like, when I met Foster, it was Claire. And Claire had battled addiction, uh, like, to the point of, like, death. Like, medicating to the point of full-blown fucking crazy drug stories and everything. Because she hated her body. She hated who she was. And then she had this, like, thing of, like, I think I'm trans. And I remember talking with her about it. And then talking about, you know, being like, I kind of want to have the top surgery. And then next thing I know, it's, like, getting the shots. And then, like, one day it was like, hey, uh, I'm Foster now. And I was like, yeah, man, whatever, dude. That's it. It's like, hey, I'm non-binary and this is the way I want I would respect you guys I should I screenshot it like as far as I'm my phone you're fucking you're foster now if that's what you want to be that's cool I love you and I don't want your life experience cheapened by any kind of shit like that and like Claire could have got laid every day of the week fucking there was no shortage of dudes she's a beautiful girl talented writer fucking had all this shit on lock and but was not happy so why would anybody who like thinks that like, Oh, they're just doing it. Cause it's a trend. No, man, it ain't a fucking trend. Cause I've seen that life. And for the last couple of years, I saw the life become the life of happiness because foster got to become foster. And that's fucking ridiculous for anybody to be like, well, they're just doing it because it's different. No, fuck you, dude. You don't, you don't have uh gender dysmorphia and all this shit because I have friends that do. And I don't want that brain. You shouldn't want that brain. And if you you have that brain, you find the best fucking solution for you. And if that involves fucking changing your name, cutting your dick off, whatever, that's your life. And we should be here to support you fully because that's the journey that you're on. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, you know, you, you said a very important thing that, that a lot of people, I think, miss out is it ally. When people hear the word ally, that means you're not allowed to make mistakes. That's that's what they think. Well, you've said something that was sexist or racist or, or, you know, homophobic before. And it's like, yeah, I did. And I fucked up. You know what I mean? And my friend who I'm an ally of understands that and they'll correct me and they'll try to help me get it right because they know that I'm not that guy. Do you know what I mean? But people that are out there, they want to call you on all your like, you can't change. Like, you can't get better. That That's the thing. It's like. Just because you've been an awful person and done and said some shit does not mean today you can't like, yeah, okay, people get embarrassed. People's pride gets in the way and then they stick to their guns and they double down on being awful. But like you can learn and educate yourself and get better. You know, if someone calls you out for shitting on them and doing something crappy, you can make good on that. Like there's still time, (laughs) you know, unless unless you're passing laws or shooting them. You know, it's it's very different than just saying something mean, but but you you know what I mean. That's the heart of all of these conversations. Like, be happy that black people don't want revenge; they just want rights. Like, 
so many fucked up things have happened. Like I've said, like I've, I'm going to write an essay on this. And like I, like I said earlier about the neighborhood I grew up in, I grew up in a neighborhood in a part of Chicago where it's extremely racist. I was grew up in that environment. I have said racist shit. I have said homophobic shit. I didn't know anybody that wasn't Irish and white or Polish my entire life. I didn't know a Jewish person until I was in my 20s. I didn't yep. know black people until I saw black people uh, like living in the day-to-day world, but I didn't know one until I was out of high school. And so did I grow up in an environment where like saying the N-word was okay? I did. I grew up around yep. Irish Catholic white people who did not give a fuck. They're all working class. They didn't give a shit. I learned through hardcore music and through punk that you should look inward and you should go, oh man, wait, no, these people mean something to our communities. These people have rights, they have lives. And this goes for trans, this goes for gay, this goes for uh, leftist idealism, this goes for respecting other people's religions. All of that came from punk and hardcore and learning through that music that thinking like that is fucking wrong. And it's an abhorrent fucking thing that you should never, ever, ever be racist. You should never be homophobic. And you should treat women with respect. And that's ingrained in who I am as a person. But that's that environmental bullshit that when you're kids, it, nobody corrects it. And everybody just is like, yeah, it's just what it is, man. Good fucking working class buddies. And you're like, no, man, that will never be acceptable, nor will it ever be cool. And I don't shortchange that whatsoever. It's vehemently important to me to right those wrongs that I had made when I was a child, that as an adult... I will never make and my kids will never make because that's the world like and all of these subsects of people that are like oh man it's cool like you're an ally we get it it's you've always stuck by us and i'm like look i still i i'm still feel like i'm paying it back from the past to like right the wrongs of even like people in my life that came before that and so to be extra outspoken about it no absolutely and you point to if anyone wanted a um an example of uh, you hit it right on the head punk and hardcore are like two of the most because it's genuinely music where they're wearing their heart on their sleeve and being very upfront about their politics and how they feel and trying to lift those voices it's a perfect place to look you can pick one band out of any of those groups and go through because again the last 20 25 30 years is kind of like the big progressive section of of those musical forms you can see it go from a more rough and tumble kind of okay this guy definitely is an ally to people but you can watch the vernacular and the words like you know um disappear like you can hear the music album to album and stage presence change and learn like even go to you know someone who's a little bit more poppy you go to a band like blink 182 and you go to like 1998 and listen to a live show of theirs and it is racist and sexist and homophobic and awful but in the like schoolyard kid like jokey kind of way that at the time it's you know it's edgelordy it's like we're just being stupid for being stupid and you move through and progress through their career and watch them change and realize that they recognize that and they got better do you know what i mean oh yeah all in that genre you can just see that you know, like full on display, you go to some other genres of music and they just use that as well. It was how it was then. So it's how it is now. That's and it's that, like, no, <laughs> that's that bullshit metal bands. Like metals culture is fucking garbage. 
And like, yeah. I love, I love metal, but it's full of a bunch of fucking neckbeard assholes. And yep. you know, they're like, yeah, fucking pussies. And you're like, oh, dude, shut up. You smell and you fucking need a haircut. And ah. uh, your hair doesn't look good, dude. It looks like a rat's nest on your fucking head. You, you're not impressing anyone. And your mustache sucks too, dude. And I grew up in metal and I can say that shit. You know, I fucking saw Pantera six times. Blow me fucking 23-year-old asshole who oh, like God, says yeah, fucking... There, there's a band that, again, ha- have progressed a bit, but their fans could could stand to understand that the world has progressed past 1986. Who I, you know, it's that's a whole thing. Pantera is a completely different subject in terms of like, yep. Does, does Phil Anselmo have some problematic shit? Yes, he does. Yes, he does, uh, and he uh, has worked to correct those. Again, he has worked to correct those. But ultimately, when people are like, "Well, Dimebag played a, a, a Rebel Flag guitar," I was like, "Dude, their whole thing was the Great Southern Trend film. They were just trying to be like." These like big like we're this we're the me- big metal band from the south. That's all that yeah. shit was. It was all performative. And if if you watch any kind of thing, if you ever talk to anybody that new Dimebag, everyone will be like, dude, he was the nicest, best dude on earth. Like not a fucking racist or gross bone in his body because it's just the universal thing. And so it's a complicated legacy between how they're. Like, if you even look at their merchandise that they still make, it's all this, like, gross, like, early 90s. It's all hokey. None of it's cool. It's all looks like shit. It's, like, chicks riding rattlesnakes and stuff. Like, I don't even know who makes their stuff anymore because Phil's, his, all of his stuff is all super current and stylish and all whatever. And it's just this weird existence that lives in that time frame. So that's whatever. But I always looked at it as, for me, my timeline started with Kurt Cobain reading on the inside of the thing it's like if you are racist homophobic or hate women or any kind of way do not come to our shows do not buy our records we don't want you there and then that moved into me loving rage against the machine which rage against the machine is ground zero for activism with me and then right around that same time i started listening to public enemy and krs1 and oh yeah got into all that and then it was like punk metal and hardcore but hardcore was the defining thing i was listening to 108 and you read the lyrics to like strife and then you read snapcase and earth crisis was a huge Uh. one and then i got into bands like converge and um all these different bands that were teaching me things that i didn't know about that necessarily made it okay to be like the singer would get on stage like this is a space for all people and we are here together this is one voice and then culturally i was like holy fuck and you go to these shows and There'd be tables of like PETA literature and like Krishna, Buddhism and um, gay rights and all this other stuff and like anti-racist uh, messaging and all these books and stuff. And I like started, I was a sponge. I was a fucking 16 year old kid picking up all these flyers and being like, wow, this is not right to be gross. And so that kind of put the wheels in motion. And those, that scene of people and those bands like Anti-Flag and all this stuff is like, that's why now I'm an activist is because of all of the punk rock and hardcore are my emotional and intellectual college to make me who I am. Yep. And people sometimes don't see that. Or a lot of the times don't see that. They, they just write it off as the same noise that their parents wrote off metal music for, which is, is really funny to me. Yeah, my, my parents, like we grew up, my parents are super cool when it comes to music, like they had the best taste. We were raised uh, 
from old school country to the blues and rock and roll. Like that was what we were raised on. So like I would go from here and John Lee Hooker to the Almond Brothers to Neil Young to Black Sabbath in an afternoon. Awesome. And so like when I got into metal and punk and they were just like, yeah, whatever. And my parents were young too. So like my mom's favorite band is Black Sabbath. And so uh, all that was just par for the course. Now, when I got into hip hop, they were, they didn't understand that at all, but you know, we all got the one thing that the parents don't understand. Speaking of hip hop, um, <laughs> to to meld back into you know the, the journalistic side, have you read the Beastie Boys book? No, I haven't yet. I highly recommend it. Just I, it seems like it'd be way up your alley. It is a it is a deep dive into what was going on where they were living at the time that they were big, and it's fascinating it's stuff i thought i knew and i didn't know a damn thing i've great. heard the documentary is great i've heard the, the book is great i just i haven't gotten around to it if you saw my room right now there is yeah i so i when i got divorced i moved into my best friend's place and so in storage i probably have 2500 books in storage and then in the room i'm in right now there is probably 300 in here and since when i moved in i've probably read like in a year I've probably read like 30 books this year and I am surrounded by books. So I'll get to it, but it's just in the stacks. I own yeah, that, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, that, 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 that's my, my wife's the same way. I try to recommend books to her and she's like, I would love to read it. Have you seen my shelf? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, what, what I did with that one is I listened to it. I, I did it on audible when I was driving to work because they got, um, Instead of obviously, you know, one of them isn't around anymore. Um, they got to fill in the gaps. They brought in friends to read the chapters. So like you'll have a, an essay like about, you know, one of them, but they'll have, you know, Snoop Dogg or LL Cool J read it. And it's like, all right, this is awesome. <laughs> like, that's, it's just. That's cool. What's your favorite Beastie Boys record? Oh, God. Um, the first one I ever bought was um which i always forget the or so my first beastie boys album that i owned was the one that sabotage was on was that licensed to ill or ill communication i forget that's ill communication ill communication so that's the first one i owned but i was the weird guy that always really loved paul's boutique and everyone told me i was stupid until now and everyone likes that one it's very weird (laughs) i for me it goes uh check your head is my favorite so good check your head is easily my favorite and then i would put paul's boutique and then i would put ill communication actually those three are so interchangeable and it's not like this crazy hierarchy because i love all three of those i find uh uh license to ill is there's some moments but for the most part i think it's hokey and then once you get to hello nasty hello nasty's got a couple of good ones but there's some like eh on there and then after like to the five boroughs is kind of in the hot sauce committee i'm kind of wishy-washy on those at best but my beastie boys is like paul's boutique check your head and ill communication i think that's like the best era of that band hands down yeah you, you gotta hear these stories like they were they were they did a tour where they opened for madonna like That'd just to wild. hear that story because she was coming up at like the as like a big thing in New York at the same time. 
So it was like they got put on a bill with her and they were coming out on stage with like a giant inflatable penis. Like yeah. it's, it's like and they still had the thing like they would leave it in storage. And they said the people who ran the storage they found out later would take the thing out and like have a party and like inflate the penis because the Beastie Boys didn't use it anymore. Because <laughs> they were like, yeah, after that tour with Madonna where we had a big dick on the stage, that was probably misogynistic. And we probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like alright that makes sense it's cool the reason that book popped into my head is a lot of that book is them going back through and doing exactly what we were just talking about here of looking back and going you know what we were just dumb kids and you could write it off as just us being dumb kids and it being a sign of the times but what we were doing that we thought was funny or what we thought was the right thing to do was it was toxic it was bad and we they spent that time in the book kind of trying to deal with those demons. And it was just really fascinating. No, I think that self-reflective, you know, I think that's super important. I mean, I've always looked at when Yelp became a a Buddhist, that was always, I have always looked to them as a guiding principle of what morality should look like. If you're an artist and like realizing that they had a problematic past, but then moving forward and becoming these uh, really, I mean, if you go from singing, uh, girls and then uh, MCA marrying Kathleen Hanna, you know clearly his opinion on women has changed. He's been with Kathleen Hanna forever. And yep. she she is, is so important to female empowerment in music. It's unbelievable. So like there's clear, clear growth there in terms of that. But I always look at that as like the places, if you can get there as an artist to be where the Beastie Boys were when all three of them were alive and that's important. Like that free to bed concert and all that stuff was important. And like, I am a Buddhist myself. So I went from being a half-assed Buddhist at like during when I was married, pre-marriage, I was really into it. And then when I got married, I kind of fell out of it. And then once I got divorced, I kind of made the commitment to my life that I was going to be a back in practicing and mindful person. And seeing the way that like Yauk and them handled it and how they embraced that totally is this thing that I was like, that's how I look at that mindset. Cause I don't like calling it a religion, but the way that they did it is how I choose to do it as well. Yeah. You're, you're going to love this book. He, he goes into so much for on that too. It, it's, it, it's amazing. It, it, it's great to hear that from someone and to hear you say, looking at it as a religion takes dis- discredits it a lot. I think in a lot of people's minds, because religion is a, it's a human construct that usually isn't thinking about the betterment of people the way that I look at it. And Buddhism, on the other hand, especially when you hear him talk about it, that's its general principle is it's not, it's not about all of you. It's about you. Yeah. It's <laughs> How about you can make things better. It's like, <laughs> all right. Self-reflection and being the best you can, you know? So I, I realized because this conversation it was incredible that I am now 20 minutes late to go back to work, which is fine. So I want to give you a chance yet again to tell people if they've never, if this is the first time they've heard Robert Dean, you know, the main things, you know, like tell, tell them, you know, your books, where they can find you and this um, thing that's coming out on the first that you want them to watch and just thank and any other shout outs you want to give. And thank you so much again. Good, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, for me, you can find me on Instagram at literally Robert Dean. 
You can find me on Facebook. Uh, it's like Robert Dean's world. That's the better place. I'm never on Instagram anymore. I don't <laughs> I have it. I have a Twitter, but I, I zeroed the whole thing out. It literally is just a, t- a picture of me and no tweets. I deleted everything. Um, beyond that, it's the functioning on zero. Robert Dean live from the lost. Well, uh, if you follow me on social media, you can get all the updates there. But and you can find my stuff on Amazon. You can Google me. Just type in Robert Dean Writer, Robert Dean Austin, Texas. You will see anything you want. I have essays about bullying a kid when I was little. I've got essays on failure, all kinds of shit. And I thank anybody who gives me the time of day. If they spend 15 minutes reading something that I wrote, it means the world to me. Awesome, man. Well, this... I like I said I I love going in cold because it makes it more eye opening to me um, to learn just as the person listening to it and I I can't wait to start um, soaking up your stuff and I can't wait to see the uh, the live from the lost well that that just sounds amazing and if that show ever ends up happening keep me posted and again you're welcome back on the show anytime to talk about any of that and or if you just want to talk about whatever um, I I really appreciate uh, getting a chance to talk to you. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And uh, for everybody listening out there at home, I have one word of advice to leave is do something kind for someone today because it will go a long way. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert Dean, for shooting the shit with Chippa. And thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.